Good morning. It's like I'm trying to still a boss yes. And uh, I'm going to come late every time so I can get that lovely warm round of applause. Huh? Um, well, it, it is good to be back. Uh, it's good to see you all here and the Zoom pajama party as well. He's still online. Um, I'm with you now for um, uh, all the Sundays up until your new pastor is inducted, and I'll be here to induct him as well. So um, I'm very excited about that, and I'm glad that I could spend the next number of weeks with you. Um, it's been good. I've been away traveling around the country and into Zimbabwe, uh, which if you subscribe to my newsletter, you might have seen that. If you want to subscribe to the newsletter, go to the Reach South Africa website and uh, fill in the subscription, and you'll get the usually monthly newsletter uh, giving you information about what's going on. I've been to Zimbabwe. A group of us went to consecrate the new bishop of Zimbabwe uh, for our churches there, Joe Mundamao. Um, and we had our first Reach Southern Africa Leadership Conference, which was just awesome. Um, it's just so exciting to see the footprint that is growing in Southern Africa through our churches. Uh, you are now part of a body that uh, uh, bigger than Reach South Africa is called Reach Southern Africa. Uh, it's about 250 churches now, 250 churches uh, in Southern Africa, Namibia. Zimbabwe, where we were, Mozambique, Malawi, Zambia, the DRC, uh, and the first churches have been planted in Angola. So, fellow Portuguese, we need you in Angola and Mozambique. It's awesome to see what the Lord is doing. And how amazingly, through this difficult COVID time, uh, the church has been growing. They were telling me in Namibia, people um, have been um, contacting our bishop in Namibia and saying, we want to start a church in our town, in our village. We've heard you on the radio. We've seen you on the internet. We want you to come and preach the gospel here. Isn't that fantastic? Um, so I'm just so excited about what is happening. Providentially, because I'm here for the next few weeks, um, and I thought, well, let me finish Romans, which we started about six months ago. Uh, and we're in this final section. Do you remember our breakdown? I hope you've got the overhead. Remember our breakdown? We did all of this last... Uh, yeah, the first uh, five sections, the uh, first four sections, and uh, this year we began the final section about the transforming power of the gospel. And providentially, it's worked out that these next few weeks we'll unpack this final section of Romans. So we looked at what is the gospel, and now we're looking at this transforming power of the gospel as it's unpacked from chapter 12 to chapter 16. And you may remember all of those many, 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 many weeks ago when I was last year. We began this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2, where Paul says, really the two introductory verses to this section of Romans. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Those two verses uh, are the introductory verses to these entire final chapters of Romans, chapter 12 to chapter 16. And everything that follows is an unpacking of these two verses, which is why 
we call this section, the transforming power of the gospel. You don't just uh, learn the gospel from chapter 1 to 11. You apply the gospel from chapter 12 to 16. It is the gospel that drives godliness. And, um, and that's what we're going to see uh, as we look further here. Let's pray for a moment. Father, uh, as we come to these uh, verses, the instructions are actually very clear, um, but it is in applying them that the challenge lies. So help us to um, understand what you're saying by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, apply what you are saying to our lives uh, so that your name may be glorified. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, transformed living, yes. And again, providentially, I was listening to Tia today and, um, and, and Ivan and thinking, okay, wow, uh, uh, the verses fit. God has worked this out, that this is what God's people need to hear at Christchurch Stellenbosch uh, as this year begins and as the changes come. Here's what it should look like in the local church as Paul unpacks what it means to live in the light of God's mercy as living sacrifices being transformed by the power of his word. There's three things that I want you to pick up from these verses today. And the first one is service. Serving the body is what Paul begins with. Verse 3, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves uh, more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you, it could say in accordance with the measure of faith God has distributed to each of you. Um, the point is, uh, from verse 3, it's how you assess yourself in the light of coming to Christ and the call to serve Christ. Um, I often think we get so caught up with verse 1 and 2, we almost forget about verse 3. But actually, verse 3 is very important as you begin to think about the part that Christ has saved you to play in his church. Um, it's really a great leveler, actually. Um, and, a, and I think a good verse of caution for us to, to think on and to reflect on when we're looking at where we can serve in the church. Um, Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. It's interesting that it doesn't say think of yourself more lowly than you ought. I think in our world... We make such a big deal about low self-esteem, but it still becomes all about you and you think about yourself. And actually, it's a form of, of, of self-obsession and pride anyway. But in the setting yourself uh, for service in the church, Paul says, think of yourself with sober judgment. Be clear-minded about this. Um, don't think too much of yourself. And I've discovered in my 22-plus years of ministry that uh, far more people... Uh, think that they're called to ministry than they really are. Uh, I've seen this as we've interviewed students at Bible College. I've seen this as we've interviewed people in our local churches who want to go into ministry. Uh, far more people seem to think um, more highly of their pastoral gifts than they really, have, uh, than they really should. Um, I remember some time ago, um, a group of our church leaders, our bishops and so on, talking to a young wannabe minister and uh, telling him after a year of assessing his gifts and abilities and reports about his abilities, um, it's very clear that um, ministry is not for you. You're not, you don't have the gifts of preaching and teaching uh, that go with it. And uh, this young man got so angry with us. Uh, and in the face of you know, half a dozen senior pastors who've got you know, 100 years of experience between them, said to us, 
Clearly, you're saying that to me because you are intimidated by my brilliance. Now, now, perhaps, uh, you know, that is the, consequences, the consequence of our modern world, which, um, uh, you know, is so politically correct that it wants to reward generously uh, any mediocrity. And uh, so that is part of the problem uh, that we over inflate people. Um, but it really does begin here with you coming to the scriptures and hearing what God is saying and assessing yourself soberly. Where are my gifts? Where are my abilities? Uh, where is it that I am called to serve? Because the reality is, you know, you can do more for the kingdom um, as a skilled accountant or engineer than as a poor pastor. And I'm saying that because I know there's a lot of accountants and engineers in this church. <laughs> but, and perhaps it's the fault of us as ministers that we can subconsciously show that pastoral ministry is the ultimate for anyone who's a Christian. But that's not the case. That really isn't the case. It is a great calling to be called into the ministry, but everyone has a calling to minister where they are and to serve the Lord with the particular gifts they have given them. And when you look at the gifts that Paul unpacks here, one of the things we must be careful uh, to take note of is that Paul is talking about a diversity of gifts, not a hierarchy of gifts. You know, this is the problem with the Corinthian church. They got so caught up with the gifts of prophecy and tongues that they started elevating certain spiritual gifts to make that these people were the spiritual giants and you, you know, brain surgeons and rocket scientists were the spiritual minnows. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. It's a very dangerous thing to do. It's far more important to be using the gifts and abilities and skills that God has given you um, where you are at, to serve in the place where you're at, than to think, oh, I should be aspiring to being the pastor um, or, heaven forbid, the bishop of the church, as if that is the high calling. That's not the high calling. The high calling is to be doing what God has gifted you to do. And the focus here in these verses, Paul is saying, is that there is one body, the body of Christ. This picture of the church as the body is a common analogy in the, in the New Testament. There is one body, verse 4 and verse 5, with many functions. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. One body, many functions. He unpacks this more in 1 Corinthians 12 as well when he talks about spiritual gifts. And the point that Paul is making here as he unpacks the spiritual gifts is not for you to make a list of the spiritual gifts and try and find them. A lot of books have been written about that, trying to work out all the spiritual gifts. I think there might be hundreds, actually. Paul uses examples. He names examples. But there must be many more, considering the diversity of things people are gifted to do. And it's, it, you couldn't actually um, list them all anyway. I mean, you know, are you, I don't know, going to say, if you've got the gift of Python programming, then you should be using that. You're not going to be able to put that in the Scriptures. But it's, it's not about what the gifts are. It's about what you do with them. That's the point here. So he says there in verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace or according to the gifts that God's Spirit has given us. And then he goes on to say what you should be doing. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith, verse 6. By the way, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but it is very possible if you look at the Greek here, 
to translate that sentence as, uh, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with the faith. Um, and scholars are kind of not sure which one because both are equally valid and both are used in different contexts. I think it's prophesying in accordance with the faith, actually, because you can't prophesy different to what God's word is saying. This is one of the problems with the Corinthians, is they were just saying, God told me all these things, but they didn't fit with Scripture. And whatever you may particularly think of prophecy, it's got to at least be speaking a word from God that agrees with God's word. Uh, you could say that's preaching, and it may be a gift beyond preaching where you're able to look into a situation and with the insight that the Spirit gives you, uh, speak a word into it. But it must not be out of step with Scripture. That's the key here. And again, the focus is not so much on the type of gift, but on using the gift. Do you see the emphasis here from verse 7? If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, some of you are unfortunately you know, followers of Liverpool and things like that. There'll be a lot of things that you won't have in common, earthly things. Uh, and that can sometimes feel like you don't all click with one another. That's true. But God has called us to be devoted to one another beyond earthly interests because of our eternal interests and because of our eternal bond that is in Christ. So you may not emotionally feel connected to somebody. You may not even, you know, personality-wise feel connected to somebody. But God has put you and I together in the same body. And therefore, we should be devoted to each other. Um, and yes, <clears throat> even if you find that there are very few earthly interests, uh, our eternal interests should be what drives us. And then these things will come. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, because your ultimate interest is the Lord and the things of the Lord. Therefore, your spiritual fervor is not... Um, founded upon earthly interests. It's founded upon eternal ones. And so these daily Christian life activities, being joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, verse 12, are part of what it means to be devoted to one another in the body. Verse 13, sharing with God's people who are in need, caring for those in our body who are, who are in, in a difficult situation, uh, practicing hospitality, it's part of what we do as believers. Hospitality literally means love the stranger. Did you know that? Love the stranger. Philozenos. Love the stranger. Do you know what the opposite of philozenos is? We use it a lot in this country. Xenophobia, yes. Yes. I had to apologize to all the Zimbabweans when I was in Harare last week. Xenophobia is not what Christians should be practicing. Philozenos is what Christians should be practice, practicing. We don't love people because they're nice like us. We love because we are in Christ. And in reality, this is the one practice that Jesus gives us as a witness to the world. That when we love one another, even when we don't often have the same things in common, and even when there are things we don't agree with each other on, when we love one another out of devotion for the things of Christ and eternity, it is one of the greatest witnesses to the world around us. Jesus said this, his famous new commandment in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. 
As, uh, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another, as the chorus goes from the King James Version. This is how the unbelieving world is given an opportunity to recognize us, to recognize us as part of the family of Jesus and to be attracted to us as part of the family of Jesus. As has been often said, out of 100 unbelievers, one will read the Bible, 99 will read the Christian. Our love for one another is one of our most powerful witnesses to the world. Now, it's not like we don't know this. This, it's not like we don't hear this. It's all over the scriptures. And this love one another thing has become almost um, a cliche. It's not like we don't know these instructions in Romans 12. But it is so huge a demand of us that I think we just automatically don't do anything about it. We just don't do anything about it because it is such a huge expectation of God's people that we kind of go, yeah. Okay, you know. Christians hear this, but subconsciously I think we just go, that's impossible. It was G.K. Chesterton's famous quote, you know, that said, um, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And that's often the problem with us. When we come to these these great expectations of God's people in the body, to love one another, to be devoted to one another. We go, yeah, that's a great ideal. But here the real world starts Monday, and these things get forgotten. And unfortunately, that falls into an easy habit for all of us, for me and for you. And the only way we're going to overcome this, really, is when we come to verses like this and we, and we see what God has called us to be in Christ, the only way we're going to overcome this is if we fall on our knees and cry out to Christ to accomplish in us what we cannot do in ourselves. You see, the greatness of the expectation shouldn't lead you to say, oh, that's a high ideal. The greatness of the expectation should lead you to say, I cannot do this but without Christ. I cannot do it without Christ, as we sing. It's one of the reasons why we should be praying for Christ to be at work in us. I hope that we'll have a prayer meeting before your new minister comes. I'll come to that. We should be praying that we'll play our part in the body. Because one of the dangers with a new minister coming is you place all your expectations for ministry on your new minister. Where the Bible actually places all the expectations for ministry on you and me. We shouldn't be asking, what's the new minister going to do for us? We should be asking, what are we going to do for him? I sound like President Kennedy now, don't I? But that's what we should be asking, because that's what the scriptures call us to ask. What are we going to do for him as we serve the body, as Jesus calls us to do? Now, if we think this is hard and we need to call on Jesus for his help, to accomplish loving one another in the body. We think that is difficult. The Lord expects us one more than that. And that is, verse, uh, that is thirdly and lastly, to be loving our enemies. Loving our enemies. Paul's final verses in this chapter um, relate to the bigger circle, not just in the body, but those outside the body, even those 
who are seen as our enemies, even those who attack us and persecute us, verse, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now this really, um, in Paul's day, would seem like going too far because the Roman Empire was bent on persecuting uh, believers in those first 300 years. And Paul says, do good to them. Seek their good, bless them, pray for their good. Doesn't even say, you know, this is more than just turn the other cheek, although Paul really is unpacking Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. But he's saying actually do good to them. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which was a common Pharisaical teaching, rabbinic teaching in those days, to justify attacking other uh, nationalities and races. Paul says, verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This may well be one of the most radical and explosive instructions ever given to mankind. And only believers with the Spirit of Christ in them could really accomplish it. It explodes every sinful instinct in us. It goes against just about every worldly, it goes against every worldly system and just about every religious system uh, in the world, which demands punishment for the persecutor. I once read a book um, uh, by a chap who was a, a very radical uh, fundamentalist Muslim who um, in Iran saw a sticker that somebody had put on a pole, on a street pole, and the sticker just said, uh, love your enemies and pray for them. And he couldn't believe that somebody would have said that, and it drove him nuts that somebody would say such a crazy thing. And for years, it stuck in his mind. What kind of person would say, love your enemies and pray for them? Until he asked a friend who was studying at university with him, and he said, I think that's from that Christian Bible, that Jesus guy. And he went and read the Sermon on the Mount and discovered that Jesus, who loved him as an enemy, Romans chapter 5, and went to the cross for him, who prayed for him, John chapter 17, and gave his life to save him. That kind of radical love is what astounds the world and I hope continues to astound us. This is our witness to the world. It's loving the enemy. It's loving the one who is opposed to us. It's loving, it's loving the one who is lost. And all of these from verse 15 can be associated with both believer and unbeliever. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited, or you could literally translate, translate that. Don't be a snob. Don't be a snob. There's nothing wrong with people in Stellenbosch associating with people from Somerset West. Don't be a snob. This is our witness to the world. This is what we do. The hurting unbeliever, we come alongside them. The mourning unbeliever, we come alongside them. The poor, the marginalized, the different person. It's being there in the life events of other people. Your lost work colleague, the person who is struggling with sexual identity. And all this confusion that the world is throwing them, come alongside that person the person who's lost a spouse, the person who's going through divorce, the person who's lost their job. That's what we're called to do. And again, these instructions, my brothers and sisters, they're not hard to understand. 
they're hard to apply. They're, I don't have to explain this. I don't have to explain these instructions and they are so obvious. The difficulty is in the application. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Because we need to really reflect on these verses because I don't know if you've noticed this, but oh, social media-driven, polarized world is more driven by revenge than reconciliation. That seems, everyone seems to be so angry. And sadly, in our Christian churches, that same kind of mood um, has, has kind of infiltrated us. And we live with anger at people, want revenge with people, rather than reconciliation. There was an article in a Christian, non-Christian magazine a few months ago. It might have been Newsweek or Financial Times or something like that. And the article was entitled... Whatever happened to forgiveness? Isn't that interesting? In a non-Christian magazine, they're asking, and it was reflecting on Twitter rage and cancel culture, whatever happened to forgiveness? Non-Christian asking that question. How much more should we be saying that in this revenge-focused cancel culture world? And by the way, we believers must be careful about becoming cancel culture against the cancel culture, eh? This could, this could go on. We should be about reconciliation. No one seems to be listening to Jesus here. Love your enemies and pray for them, said Jesus. Bless those who persecute you. Don't just ignore them. Do good to them. Or as Paul says to the Corinthians, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be wronged? And it is beyond just putting up with the offense. It is beyond just forgiving the offense even. It is responding to the offense with the complete opposite of what that offense deserves. Verse 20. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's beyond just putting up with the offense. It's beyond even just forgiving the offense. It is responding with the complete opposite of what the offense deserves. You see, my friends, everything in this chapter, everything in these 29 at least uh, instructions that are given in this chapter, there's about 29 of them. Everything in this chapter is not just about the 29 instructions that you must follow. It's not saying these are the rules for you if you're a Christian. It is saying 29 times, this is how you reflect Christ. This is how you reflect Christ to one another in the body and to the world around you. This is how you reflect Christ because this is Christ. Romans 5 verse 8, who loved us when we were his enemies, who didn't just respond by ignoring us, who didn't just respond even just by forgiving us, but by giving us the complete opposite of what we deserve. Family of our Father in heaven. 
This is Christ who overcame evil by his ultimate good act of going to the cross and taking the wrath that we deserve. And if we are in such a, if we are in such a savior and in such a body, then to serve that body of believers is Christ-likeness. It's being like Christ. To love that fellow believer is Christ-likeness. To love our enemies is Christ-likeness. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. More people are one to Jesus through kindness than through conflict. As a matter of fact, I haven't found many people who've been conflict-driven into the kingdom. People are one to Jesus because of Christ-like kindness. Maybe that's your testimony. It certainly was mine. I think I've come here long enough for you to get to know me and I can tell you some personal stories, even some painful ones. When I was much younger, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I became a Christian in my mid-twenties, didn't grow up in a Christian home, lived a classic unchristian life. But when I was in the army, I was in a small medical unit that was in the Northern Cape. There was about a dozen of us. Out of that dozen of us in the small medical unit that stayed in the same bungalow and worked in the same place, out of those 12 guys, one of them was a Christian. Now, I, I can't even remember his name because we didn't use first names in the army. You know, you were just like, I don't know, Fondamerva. And uh, I think this guy's name was Lento or Slento or something like that. And he was from the Freistaat. And he was the only Christian out of the 12 of us. And do you know what we did with that guy? the other 11 of us, we made his life miserable. We'd see him reading his Bible and we'd jeer at him and we made fun of him. He never swore in the army, which is unbelievable. He was, he was conscientious, he was hardworking. We, we, we used to get a weekly pass where you could take six hours a week. We always took our weekly pass on Saturday night. 11 of us would take our weekly pass on Saturday night and go into town. He took his weekly pass on Sunday morning so he could go to church. And do you know what we did? We jeered that guy. We persecuted him. We made fun of him. He always got the hard task. He always got the butt end of things. He, just, he, he was continually sidelined by us and made fun of and jeered. And he took it. He would laugh it off. He'd go, ah, oh, guys, it's, you know? And he just carried on like that. Anyway, one Saturday night, we took our Saturday pass and we went into town. And, uh, you know, I had a few too many cups of tea. And I was finished. Eh? They had to carry me back to the camp. It got so out of hand that night at the club. They had to carry me back. At about 3 o'clock in the morning, I arrived my mates dumped me on the bed, finished. I had to be on shift the next morning at 7 o'clock for a 12-hour shift. The next morning, Sunday morning, 7 o'clock. Anyway, my mates all tried to wake me up at about 10 to 7, and I was gone, gone. And they were like, oh, well. And then they abandoned me, and they all went off to their things, and I was just left to face my fate. And I would have been in trouble because only one person is on duty on a Sunday, and it was my Sunday. But I was out. 
I couldn't get out. Anyway, I'm like lying there half conscious and um, thinking I should get up, but I couldn't move. And then I felt this hand on my shoulder and I kind of looked up and it was Slenter. And he, and he was in his uniform, dressed. And he said, just relax, lions. Just go to sleep. I'll, I'll take your shift. And he took my shift. And he went and did 12 hours instead of go to church that morning. He did the 12 hours that I should have done so that I wouldn't get into trouble. And do you know what he, do you know what he said to me when he came back from shift and I was still recovering in the, in the bungalow? Do you know what he said to me when, I came, when he came back from the shift? Nothing. He didn't say, lions, you owe me, or, yeah, you see what Christians do for you. He never said a word, never demanded payment back, never even, and he never got a thank you from me even. I just carried on. But I tell you what, that act put a knife in my heart. That act just convicted me and stayed with me until Two years later, for the first time in my life, I walk into a church where the Bible is preached and I hear about the Jesus who loved his enemies and gave his life for them. And I was thinking to myself, I know that guy. I've seen that guy. And I knew it was true. That Jesus loved his enemies and did good to them. Like Slender had done for me. How dare we underestimate the power of our love for our enemies as well as for the body? If we do not see that, well, then maybe we haven't seen this. As we come to the table, you and I are visibly demonstrating the God who loves his enemies and does good to them. Let's remember that together and ask God for his spirit to reflect that to others. Come, let's pray. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, how we bow before you, our Heavenly Father. Reflecting on what 
great good you have done for us, your enemies. And how ashamed we are that too often we do not do the same good to ours. Oh, have mercy on us, our Heavenly Father, and forgive us. And empower us by your Holy Spirit to reflect Christ to our lost and angry world. And as we eat and drink together, as we visibly proclaim the Lord's death and see visibly the reminder of your body broken for us and your blood shed for us, help us to realize this is the ultimate good that our God has done to his enemies. And may that same spirit be in us as we live in the midst of ours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, my brothers and sisters, the uh, council are going to distribute the bread and the grape juice. Hold on to it. We're going to eat and drink together. And the music team will play for us. <laughs>